You'll please be opening your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. Last week, we were reminded that the kingdom of heaven is a present reality. We sung about that just a moment ago, didn't we? That we are in His kingdom right now. It's arrived in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus said so Himself in Mark 1.15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. If you find the phrase at hand confusing, consider Matthew 12, 28. If it is by the Spirit of God that I, Jesus, cast out demons, then the Spirit of God has, I mean, the kingdom of God has come upon you. And if you're a little dense and has come upon you, still isn't clear enough, then think of Luke 17, 20 through 21. Now, having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming. He answered them and said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there it is. For behold, what? The kingdom of God is in your midst. Hallelujah. Jesus clearly taught that the kingdom of heaven was a present reality, not some distant hope that would come thousands of years later. We who are born again are already, according to Colossians 1.13, rescued from the domain of darkness... And we're transferred into the kingdom of His beloved Son. But as we saw last week, the full blessings of that kingdom do not arrive all at once. Matthew 13, 31 through 33. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, and this is smaller than the other seeds. So the God-man Jesus came to claim his rightful domain over the earth, but instead of arriving in royal pomp and instant conquest, King Jesus began as a small seed that God planted in the corrupt world. But it wouldn't continue as a small seed, would it? What's it say? It says, when it is full grown. You've got to love that word, don't you? That when word. The kingdom of heaven had humble beginnings, but one day it will be full grown. And how does most natural growth take place? Gradually. Almost imperceptibly. I've seen Nate almost every day of his life since he's been born. From day to day, I couldn't tell that he was growing. Every day he looked the same as he had the day before. But now it's an undeniable fact that that little booger has outgrown old dad. I don't really like that, but it's, it happened gradually over time. And the kingdom of heaven will grow in that same way. And when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree. The mustard seed is indeed the largest of the garden plants. That's, bot- that's just part of botany. But from that natural expected outcome, which, we would, which would gradually happen over time, we see supernatural, unprecedented results. Borrowing from the Old Testament imagery in Ezekiel 31, 3-6, and Daniel 4, 10-22, it becomes a tree so large that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. The figure of birds making nests calls to mind that which is positive and helpful. Nesting carries the idea of protection, safety, refuge, and sanctuary. Like a mother bird provides for her young. We cited Daniel 4, 10 through 12 last week in Nebuchadnezzar's Nebuchadnezzar's dream. He beheld a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. And the tree grew large and became strong and its height reached the sky. And it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant and it was food for all. And the beasts of the field found shade under it and the birds of the sky dwelt under its branches and all living creatures fed themselves from it. 
In his interpretation of the king's vision, Daniel explains that in verses 20 through 22, the tree that you saw is you, O king, for you have become great and grown strong, and your majesty has become great and reached to the sky and your dominion to the end of the earth. That's what Jesus is saying is going to happen with his kingdom. But in a much greater way than happened with Nebuchadnezzar. Under Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian Empire had brought unparalleled advancement in almost every field of endeavor. Agriculture, architecture, education, economics, the arts. The birds and animals who benefited from the trees, shade, and food represented all the other nations of the world. And like the Babylonian kingdom, the kingdom of heaven will grow to be a blessing and has grown to be a blessing to all the other kingdoms and nations out there on the whole earth. And it's just getting started. And that brings us to our text for today, Matthew 13, 33. And he spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks or sata of flour until it was all leavened. You're probably thinking that this parable sounds exactly like the last, but it is indeed another parable. If the parable of the leaven added nothing to what the parable of the mustard seed taught, then Jesus wouldn't have offered us both for our consideration, would he? They're both worth looking at, bearing down on. Jesus wasn't a time waster, so he's adding something. And we'll see that the parable of the leaven teaches us a related yet different point. Again, we see the phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like. And again, he compares it to, instead of to something grand and glorious, to something ordinary. Last week it was a mustard seed. This week it's just leaven hidden in a lump of dough. And in our text today... This, Jesus compares it to a woman hiding a measure of leaven in three pecks or sata of flour. Exactly what is Jesus getting at? We're going to have similar points to last week, but humble beginnings once again. Gradual spread and comprehensive effect. Let's begin with the humble beginnings. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three sata of flour. Just like the man deliberately and purposely took, a, took and sowed a singular mustard seed in a field uh, instead of in a house garden like one would expect, here we see a woman take and hide a bit of leaven in three pecks of flour. Now, we shouldn't overemphasize that the man plants out in the field and the woman bakes in the home because the, tradition, the traditional gender roles are not the main point of the text. But I do want to say this, we shouldn't overlook it either. It's not the main point. We shouldn't linger on it, but it's there. The assumed gender roles are at least worthy of acknowledging. Can we please make the vocation of homemaker a compliment and badge of honor again instead of a symbol of inferiority and reproach? Thank you, mothers. What you do is exceedingly valuable. Being a helpmeet, a nurturer, and a child rearer is the high and lofty calling of women. And, one, and the, the woman who devotes herself to such undistractedly is not wasting her life, contrary to popular belief. A woman, a woman submitting to her boss in the corporate world is not more dignified than a woman submitting to her husband, regardless of what our godless secular culture screams loudly. And we as a church do well to take every opportunity to point that out. But the main point here is the humble beginnings of the kingdom of heaven, not the gender roles that are kind of there in the background. So we see that in the relatively small amount of leaven, 
in, in the fact that the leaven was often considered evil. And we're going to consider both aspects briefly. But relatively small is our first point. In our last parable, we had the smallest cultivated seed, the mustard seed, sold in a big field rather than in a garden. In this parable, we have a relatively small amount of leaven hidden in an unusually large amount of flour. Notice first that it's hidden. In the ancient world, the normal method of bringing about fermentation in bread making was to insert a small amount of old fermented dough that was kept back from a previous baking into the new batch of dough. It's in this leaven or sourdough. We've got some women here that make sourdough bread, don't we? Quite a few. In this sourdough, rather, it's sourdough rather than yeast that the woman's using here in our example. The introduction of this small amount of leaven makes no visible difference to the mass of dough. Like the smallness of the singular mustard seed in the big field. The, seemingly the leaven is insignificant since its presence in the dough is invisible. I want to tell you something about leaven. Leaven's alive. Guys, that should excite us. Because remember, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven. The kingdom of heaven is alive. And living things can make a big difference. When leaven is in the mix, when it's mixed just right, and if the temperature hasn't varied too much, then it hypothetically, hypothetically the fermentation would never run out of steam regardless of how much dough there was. In perfect, in perfect situation, perfect circumstances, it would never stop. It would just go and go and go. In general, they would place leaven, though, in small amounts of flour because the smaller the measure of flour, the easier it would be to get the mix right. And, and the easier it would be to manage the, manage the temperature long enough for the leaven to go through it in its entirety. Now, what did this woman do with the leaven? We see the, the verb, she hid it which isn't the customary word that we would see in reference to adding leaven to flour. The typical word would be that she placed it, possibly that she worked leaven into a, uh, a lump of dough. And, and when, when there's an unusual word, it should grab our attention, it should make us think. Why did he choose the word hid? The word hid emphasizes how large the amount of flour is in comparison to the tiny amount of leaven. It's so small that it's easy to get lost. It's unnoticeable even because we've got so much flour and such a small amount of leaven. And what is this quantity of flour? How much, how much flour are we talking? We read it and some Old Testament stories should pop to mind. Three measures of flour was the quantity that was used by Sarah in Genesis 18.6 when the Lord and three men visited Abraham and Sarah. Remember that? And it was the amount that Gideon prepared in Judges 6.19 when the angel of the Lord visited him. Along with a few other examples, we see this three measures of flour, but that's not the amount mentioned here by Jesus, actually. It looks there's, there's a similarity, but it's actually different. According to Josephus, the sata is more than an ephath that's associated with the grand hospitality of Genesis 18 and Judges 6.19. And it's way more, actually. Uh, a sata is about 39 liters, which would, which would represent 60 pounds of flour. That's a crazy amount of flour, guys. 60 pounds of flour would make enough bread to feed a small village. Ain't nobody that you know besides Emily Cook of Buttercup Bakery, trademark, who needs that much flour. Nobody. Clearly, the massive amount of flour and the word hid is used by Jesus to emphasize how insignificant the leaven seems in comparison to the quantity of flour. He's, he's using such large quantity in order to exaggerate for effect. 
Who would make that much? But this woman hides it in there. Just like the size of the tree that grew from the mustard seed into a massive field in this, in this parable, just like the last, we're reminded that during Jesus' earthly ministry, the kingdom was almost imperceptible. Both because of its few citizens and it was a spiritual, not visible kingdom. It did not come with signs to be observed. Jesus explained on another occasion, nor will they say, look, here it is or there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. It might be like a little bit of leaven hidden 60 pounds of flour. But it's there. And it's alive. <laughs> and it's alive. But not only do we see humble beginnings in the amount of flour, but also in the symbolism. Is leaven a symbol of evil? Some commentators point out that leaven is often associated with evil in the Old Testament. And it actually is. The term leaven is even used by Jesus in a negative way later in the book of Matthew. Remember when he says, Beware of the leaven of the scribes and the Pharisees, the Pharisees and Sadducees. We see Paul use it of corruption spreading through the church in 1 Corinthians 5. And although leaven is often used as a negative, it isn't always used as a negative. In some contexts, it's used as a symbol of evil. The fact that it's used sometimes for a symbol for evil forces doesn't mean that in others it can't stand for that which is good. So how can we know for sure how that leaven is being used as a symbol you know, here? What's, what's the meaning here? Well, I want to point out a few things that we need to know just in Bible interpretation in general. First of all, symbols are fluid. For instance... Satan goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, right? 1 Peter 5, 8. But Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Are lions evil or are they good? It's used for both extremes, isn't it? And birds, remember God feeds and cares for the birds, Matthew 6, 26. But also birds represent the devil, snatching away the word of God. And the serpent is used for Satan. But then again, in Matthew 10, 16, he admonishes us to be as wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And in John 3, 14, it says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So symbols are a little, little ambiguous. They're, they're, they're fluid. They're flexible, depending on context. And the spread of leaven is not all-powerful. Leaven is pictured as stronger than individual Christians and stronger than even disobedient congregations of Christians, but it's never ever pictured as more powerful than the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven should, could be... If it could be leavened by evil, then we don't have a very powerful kingdom, do we? And leaven is nowhere clearly ascribed as evil. If you also remember in the Old Testament, they, baked, they, they, they were commanded in Leviticus 23, 11, they shall be bacon with leaven. They are the first fruits unto the Lord. So the leaven's offered to the Lord as a good thing. And leaven was to be used in sacrificial offerings as well. So leaven is a neutral figure of an all-pervading contagious power. But the best way to make sure we're getting this text right is just to read the text and think. A lot of times we, we read it and we don't actually read it and think. But the passage doesn't read the kingdom of heaven is like three sata of flour which leaven gets mixed up in and corrupts it. That's not what it says. It says the kingdom of heaven is like the leaven, right? It's not like the flour. It's like the leaven. Showing that the leaven, which in itself is not inherently evil, but is actually highly useful and wholesome, serves here as a figure of the secret but all-pervading and subduing power of the gospel. That's what we've got. 
But the fact that leaven is so readily associated with evil actually fits well with the gospel anyway. People that insist, no, it's a sign of evil, it's a sign of evil. Guys, isn't the cross a sign of evil? It is, right? The cross is itself the greatest moral good that ever happened in this universe, while at the same time being the result of the pervasiveness of evil men, so that Christ redeemed us from the curse of law, having been made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So even if there is evil, evil uh, insinuations in leaven, that doesn't mean that the kingdom of heaven isn't spreading in, in spite of that. And many people looked at Jesus as a demon, not as a good one, right? They didn't think of Jesus as good. They thought of him as bad, but they were wrong. He was good and they were bad. And he was gradually spreading. And that's our next point. Let's consider how the kingdom of heaven, which finds its victory in the cross, spreads. This gradual spread, which a woman took and hid in three sat of flour until... I love that word, until. So the leaven is like the mustard seed because the mustard seed is smaller than all the other seeds, but when it is full grown. Remember that? When it is full grown? We see that the certainty, the certainty that comes the end of a gradual process in the word when with the mustard seed. Now again, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. So the until functions here just like the wind did in the, in the parable of the mustard seed. You see that? Functions exactly the same way. But where the mustard seed shows the gradual growth of the kingdom of heaven until it's a blessing to all the nations... The parable of the leaven goes one step farther. It shows the spread of the kingdom until all the kingdoms of the earth are transformed by the kingdom of heaven. One, it becomes so large that all the birds can rest and nest on it. Here, it's so impacted that it saturates and it overtakes everything that's around it. It's a step beyond the parable of the mustard seed, of the mustard seed that we're seeing here. So now it's not its own growth, which is remarkable, but the expansion which it causes in the new dough. So the kingdom of heaven and those who represent and proclaim it has a dramatic, a dramatic effect on human society. Let's consider again this word hid. This time in connection with the gradual spread of the kingdom until all the earth is transformed. The verb hid should remind us of Matthew eleven twenty five. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and intelligence, but you've revealed them to babes. We should be reminded of 13.11. To you it's been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. That it's not everybody all at once, but he, he reveals it to just a few people, a few select men. God intended the kingdom of heaven to begin and spread in inconspicuous, gradual ways. Consider when Satan tried to tempt Jesus to go outside the Father's plan to make a big public splash. Do you remember? He, he took him to the high pinnacle of the temple and he told him to cast yourself down and that the, he, because it was written that the angels would be given charge concerning you lest at any time that you dashed your foot against the stone. So in other words, go to a big public place, Jesus. You want everybody to believe in you? Go to a big public place and throw yourself down. And when the angels come and swoop in and save you, what a spectacle it'll be. You want to be king? There's your shortcut. Jesus don't need no shortcuts. Jesus submits himself to the Father's plan. He doesn't need a dramatic spectacle, obvious public spectacle like that. That wasn't God's plan. So Jesus says, on the other hand, it's written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You just wait on him. Trust his plan and do what he says. 
The hidden, inconspicuous, graduous spread of the kingdom has always been by design. There is no gridlock between the forces of good and the forces of evil. It's not that we're, it, that we're combating little by little. It's that God is just gradually working out His plan and taking more and more over time according to His plan and according to His purposes. God is just redeeming the world in His own way and in His own time. That's why we see this messianic secret throughout the book of Matthew. How many of you have noticed the messianic secret as it's sometimes called? Remember after Jesus healed the leper? What did Jesus tell the leper? See to it that you tell no one. But go and show yourself to the priest. And then after two blind men were healed, 9.30, their eyes were opened and Jesus sternly warned them, see to it that nobody knows about this. And then after, after Peter's confession, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, he agrees with him. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, Simon Bar-Jonah, but our Father who is in heaven, right? But then he tells them in 16.20, that he t- warns the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. What in the world? The truth about the kingdom of heaven is not only inconspicuous, it's deliberately kept hidden for the time being. They're in the ministry of Christ. It's deliberately hidden. But one day it's going to be plain for all of us to see. What's Jesus waiting for? Well, we find out in that last messianic secret text after the mountain of transfiguration Jesus revealed himself in his glory to Peter, James and John remember he was transfigured before them and his face shone like sun and his garments became white as light what a spectacle the, the, the disciples were absolutely confounded God tell, and then God tells them directly. He says a, in 17, 5 through 6, A bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to Him. And when the disciples heard that, they fell down on the ground and were terrified. God, I don't blame them to y'all. Do you think Jesus could have done that while everybody was watching? He could have. But that wasn't the plan. That's not what's happening in the spread of the kingdom of God. That's not what he's doing. And then, he, then, he, and then once again, we see this messianic secret text rear its confusing head, but this time with a telling explanation. 17.9 As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. Because that has to happen. I'm going to hide this. I'm not going to reveal it. I'm going to speak in parables to everybody else. Because otherwise, if I, if I, don't, if I make a public spectacle, they won't kill me. But I must lay my life down for my sheep. And I must do that as a perfect act of love for the whole world, fulfilling the whole law. And that's the way I can conquer death and rise victorious. It had to happen like that. It's almost like God has a better wisdom than we do. I wish we didn't forget that so often, don't y'all? But Jesus, the Lamb, would become Jesus' lion. King Jesus, high and lifted up. And then the kingdom would begin to spread, spread gradually to the ends of the earth. You remember, throughout the book of Matthew, he says, don't go to the Gentiles, don't go the way of the Samaritans, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But after the resurrection from the dead, what do we see? In Matthew 28, 18 through 20, 
Jesus came up and spoke to the disciples saying, All authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. Guys, I like that part of the Great Commission. All authority. How much authority does Jesus have? Every bit of it. All. All authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. Go therefore, since that's true, go therefore. Go is rooted in something. Go because since all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, since that's true, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Oh, there's a gradual spread that's going to start right then. The messianic secret's over. The secret's out. Why? Jesus raised from the dead. The secret's out. And go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Guys, the the Great Commission ain't tell people to get saved so they can go to heaven. It's teaching them to observe all things whatsoever Christ commanded, and He has all authority in heaven and earth. We have a truncated miniature gospel that we're peddling when we need to return to the fully orbed gospel, the every word of God is profitable kind of gospel. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. God intended the subjugation of the nations as the result of His life, death, and resurrection. Remember Romans 1, 1 1-5. Paul a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the, go- for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born a descendant of David according to the flesh, but was declared to be the son of God with power. There it is again. That word for power is the same as the word for authority in, in uh, Matthew 28. Exousia. That's right. Would declare to be the Son of God with power. Where? By the resurrection from the dead. All authority is given to Him. The messianic secret's over. Take this message to the end of the earth. You've got the authority to do it. To call people to repentance. To submit to King Jesus. And have their sins atoned for by faith in His completed work. According to the Spirit of holiness, Christ Jesus our Lord. I'm not done with this Romans 1, 1 through 1-5 verse through whom we have received grace and apostleship. Why? To bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles, all the nations, for His name's sake. This, this subjugation of the whole world because the gospel goes and it spreads to the whole earth and it takes everything. That everything it touches, it takes it. It says it's mine. I don't know where our pessimistic Christianity came from. We're just waiting to get mowed over. Are we more than conquerors or are we not more than conquerors? Is the Almighty King of glory, are we on His side? If we are, why do we expect to lose all the time? If Jesus conquered death, why can't He conquer abortion? Amen. That's right. Amen. If He conquered death, why can't He conquer Obergefell decision and get rid of homosexual marriage? Why can't He? Well, He just can't do that. God and can't doesn't go in the same sentence. He can do it all because all authority has been given to Him on heaven and earth. And because He's declared as the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead in order to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. It even uses that word, all the Gentiles, for His name's sake. If that was His purpose, do you think He's going to fail? Of course He's not going to fail. How successful will we be? Jesus pointed to the certainty of the seed's growth until it exceeds the expected size. 
And, he, and not, he appeals again to the mysterious forces of life within the natural processes of the spread of the leaven until it's exceeded its expected incorporation through the whole sizable 60-pound lump. It'll be gradual, but success is certain because it is the purpose of God. Christ's rule of grace, no matter how despised and no matter how seemingly insignificant at first, is bound to go forward, conquering and to conquer. As we sang in Stand Up for Stand Up for Jesus, from victory unto victory, His army He shall lead. Until when? Until every foe is vanquished and Christ is Lord indeed. Do we believe what we sing or do we just sing it because it's fun to sing together? Because this is the resurrected Lamb of God that we serve. This is Him. And how, how effective will it be? Comprehensive effect. You see that in the text too. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three sat of flour until it was all leavened. We see the comprehensive spread of the kingdom in two places in this text. The three pecks and all was leavened. Let's look at the three sata or pecks. Sata is actually the better word. Perhaps the three sata refers to the totality of the human race. That's been suggested by some commentators as, re- as represented by the three sons of Noah. Remember, Noah gets on a boat with his three sons and their three daughters and the whole human race comes from Shem, Ham, and Japheth. That's who populated the whole world. Well, that's, that's a lot of flour there, isn't it? Maybe. I don't know. That would match well with the emphasis of the kingdom spreading to the nations. I, I don't know for sure, but maybe. Some suggest that it's pointing to the totality of the individual man, body, mind, and spirit. But I think we can assume both, and even more than both, because three almost always points to the entirety and completeness throughout the Scriptures. Three represents completeness. The Trinity, right? Everything. A wholeness. The kingdom of heaven has come on earth to stay and to work a whole work This irresistibleness is a ground of vast encouragement. It should be, shouldn't it? The capacity of a small amount of leaven to affect a large quantity of dough is always impressive. But as with the mustard seed, exceeding the natural growth as the largest plant and becoming a tree, this example is more than anyone would ever naturally expect to happen. In normal baking, the fermentation can run out of steam because the mix is not right or the temperatures varied too much. But here the quantity of dough is unusually large... But those possibilities aren't even considered because the kingdom of heaven is like the action of leaven, but even more so. And who's the chef? Who's the one making sure the temperature stays right? Who's the one making sure that the baking gets done? Emily's a good cook, but we got God cooking this stuff. And He's going to get it right. And the whole lump of dough is going to be leaven. That's the hope we have here. Nothing less than the ultimate realization of this comprehensive goal can ever be the aim of the believer. Guys, we can't be satisfied if I hope my neighbor gets saved. Guys, I hope your neighbor gets saved too. But I want Jesus Christ as Florida and King of all. He already is and I want it to be recognized. I want every knee to bow and every tongue to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I want that. And that's what we should be working toward. Praying toward. I love John, John Knox, the old Puritan. He don't say, hey, hope I win somebody while I'm in Scotland. No, he says, give me Scotland lest I die. Why do we start thinking so small? Because we're too small? It don't take a lot. It takes holy people 
set-apart people that are placed in the larger context of this wicked world and working it out with singleness of mind and it impacts everything it touches. Isaiah 11.9 They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the bottom of the sea. It is Christ or chaos. And since we love mankind, we cannot stomach chaos. So we must believe Christ when He said, All authority was given to me on heaven and earth. And we must go and make disciples of these nations for their own good because we love them. And know that He is with us always as an encouragement that we cannot fail. That's what the Great Commission is about. Jesus' purpose is not merely to get people to heaven when they die or only to be an instrument in God's hand to bring others there, but everywhere to bring every thought of whatever kind into submission to and therefore in harmony with the mind and will of Christ. We must demand that not only every tongue, but also every domain of life exalt Him. I love Acts 17, 30-31. Once again, he appeals to the resurrection of the dead, but he says, Having overlooked the times of ignorance in the past, God is now commanding men everywhere that they should repent. Why? Because he's fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Once again, there's the evidence that he has all authority. Now go with that authority and command Men to repent. A command is much more in keeping with discipleship than an invitation. I just want to invite you. No, I want to command you. In the name of the Lord Jesus, be reconciled to God. You are under His judgment currently. I want you to repent. He's gracious. He will receive sinful men. Come to Him. If you don't, you will perish. It's a command. Is it an invitation? Yeah, but it's a command. We've kept the invitation, but we've lost the command because we've lost the idea of authority. The power... The exousia of the kingdom of God. God's ways are good and they speak to the conscience. The law promotes honesty among those who govern and those who are governed, as well as in business, industry, and commerce. He does all this not apart from, from, but in connection with the evangelization of the world. Christ's rule has already exerted a wholesome influence in thousands of ways and this influence is still continuing. And it's clear to all who have eyes to see. All one has to do is compare conditions, for example. What are the treatment of prisoners of war? The treatment of women? The treatment of workers? The treatment of the underprivileged? What are they like in countries where Christ's rule has not yet been acknowledged to any extent? How are they treated there? It's called third world countries for a reason, isn't it? But then, in nations where the gospel has taken root... It's made headway and things are better in Christian nations and, and where the gospel has began to spread and take and, 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 and transform the, the, the flower that's around them, it touches everything. Education, medicine, law, business, everything. Just like, just like Nebuchadnezzar's empire did, only more so and longer lasting. And longer lasting. The point of the parable is that sourdough or leaven, once inserted in the right conditions, continues its process of fermentation until the whole batch is risen. And God will watch this metaphorical pot and make corrections to the temperature as needed. I'm not sure how long it will take, but our calling is not to concern ourselves with that. We just need to trust God and be faithful. That's it. Trust God 
and be faithful. The important fact is that Art, science, literature, business, industry, commerce, government, these and all other departments of human thought and endeavor begin to be blessed by Jesus' ministry. They began while He was here to be blessed and they still are working their way out as the Holy Spirit works in us as believers that Christ lives in and through us and His ministry is going on through Christians. John 14, 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, this is Jesus speaking. He who believes in me, the works that I do, he will also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. Do we still believe that? No, no, no. Jesus was powerful. We're losers. No, I'm in Christ Jesus and he's in me. I have the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And they are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity what every thought to the obedience of Christ. That's what we have. Jesus said, I will ask of my Father and He will give you another helper, guys. And He will be with us forever. We have the Holy Spirit of the living God. This leaven is working and it will continue to. We have this, this three Sabbath, but remember I said until all was leavened. We've already touched it, but I want to point out just a few more things. The until all the sat as a flower being leavened corresponds to when it's full grown. It's larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree. We've already pointed that out. But there, there the nations are blessed by the kingdom. Here the nations are overtaken by the kingdom. And that's where this all is headed. Let's look. Turn with me. We're gonna, I'm going to have you turn to two, two places. But turn with me to Daniel 2. We've looked, at one, we've looked at one text in Daniel. I want to look at Daniel 2. Another vision of Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel 2, 31. You'll probably be familiar with it when I begin reading. You, O king... We're looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. The statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of the statue was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms silver, its belly and its thighs bronze, its legs of iron and its feet part iron and partly clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands and it struck the statue on the feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, and the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floor. And the wind carried them away so that there was not a trace of them found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain. (laughs) And it filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now I'll tell you the interpretation. Here's Daniel's interpretation. You, O king, and the kings are the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hands and has caused you to rule over them. So we have a world power that's bringing blessing through the nation, through Babylon, through the Babylonian empire. You are the head of gold. And after you, there will rise another kingdom inferior to you, 
And then a third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over the earth. So we've got the Assyrian Empire, and then we have the um, uh, Persian Empire. The, um, um, and then we've got the Greek Empire, fourth. There will be a fourth kingdom. Uh, the fourth, we've got the Roman Empire. There will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron, insomuch as iron crushes and shatters all things. So like iron, that breaks in pieces. It will crush and break all these in pieces. And in that you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron. It will be a divided kingdom, and it will have the toughness of iron is as much as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. As the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, and they will combine with one another in the seat of men, but they will not adhere to one another, as iron does not combine with pottery. And in the days of those kings, the king of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it itself will endure forever. I think the king of that kingdom will have to be immortal, won't he? He'll have to live forever. Maybe he conquered death or something and maybe he has a kingdom that's already that we're part of that's going to endure forever. It's going to become a mountain that fills the whole earth and it's going to crush all other so-called kings in this world because the king of that kingdom is truly the king of kings and the lords of lords. And the way that Nebuchadnezzar was, Jesus is in a much greater sense. Now guys, I don't know how all this works out. But in some sense, it's already happened. 1 Peter 3.22, Jesus is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjugated to Him. That was the purpose of the first advent, remember? We've got the text Michael Carr preached for us in Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Father of Eternity, and Prince of Peace. And there will be no increase, there will be no end to the increase of his government or peace. That sounds like this mustard seed, doesn't it? It's going to increase forever and it will never stop increasing. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. And guys, what's it say last? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Last place I want you to turn. If I'm boring you, you need to repent. So turn to Acts 1, 6 through 8. We see this working itself out in the book of Acts. You remember the disciples, man, they were, they were interested in the restoring of the kingdom. They wanted it done all at once. That wasn't God's plan. They should have listened to the parable of the mustard seed. But the disciples were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times of the epochs, which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the world. You see that spread? It's happened too, hasn't it? That's not a challenge. It's not even a command. It's, it's, a, it's a statement that that will happen and it has happened and it will continue to happen forever. Days later in Acts 2, 4 through 12. You're right there. 
we have the day of Pentecost and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. Don't, don't miss that. People are like, we need to hurry and get the gospel to all the nations so Jesus can come back. Guys, there were devout men from every nation under heaven. Read your Bible. It's in Acts 2. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished. Why are, why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of those in our own language to which we were born? And then it names these, and I can't pronounce anything. Michael makes fun of me when I try to pronounce things. So, uh, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Phygia, I believe, and Pamphylia and, and Egypt and the districts of Libya and around Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. Guys, he's making the point. He's even listing them. He's like, if, if all nations under heaven isn't, isn't clear enough for you, let me go and list them all. They were all there. And we hear them in our own tongue speaking of the mighty deeds of God and they all continued in amazement and great perplexity saying to one another, what does this mean? And they ask and Peter answers in Acts 2, 32-36. And he appeals once again to the resurrection. And listen where he goes. This Jesus, he talks about how they killed the Son of God. And he says, This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God. There's that power and that authority again. He's God's right hand man, right? And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. He's going to subjugate the nations and then He's coming back. That's what it says. We're waiting for this instantaneous, everything gets worse and worse, and then he comes back. No, he's going to make the, his enemies a footstool for his feet, and then he's coming back. That's what it says. Am I reading the text, or am I reading into the text? That's what it says, isn't it? Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus who you crucified. Guys, we live in light of eternity, so we can afford to be patient. But listen to this. We cannot afford to be pessimistic. What's this sermon about? This sermon's about getting Christ's people to stop hanging their head down low like they're defeated whipped puppies and say, No, I'm a, I'm a conqueror by Jesus' name, and I will go and conquer by this name. And we will take ground. And we will win. But, but all the odds are stacked against you. It was the mustard seed too. And it was the leaven that was hidden the 60 pounds of flour. But mustard seeds are alive. <laughs> and leaven is alive. And the kingdom is alive. Living in us. And it's going to spread. And we will win. You ever heard it said, whether you think you can or whether you think you can't, you're right? <laughs> We've had so many Christians these days thinking, oh well, we just have to give up and just quit just the way it is. And they've quit doing what God commanded because they believe we're just going to get railroaded. No. Mustard seeds mentioned again in Matthew 17, 20. 
because of the littleness of your faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith as the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. Why, what do we do with all these optimistic texts? Well, we ignore those. And we read a spurious text out of context in Matthew 24 about things waxing worse and worse, which is about things that are going on before the destruction of the temple. It's not talking about today. And then we just go on. Oh, well, we're just beat. No, we're not. We might be for a generation or two because we're pessimistic and we don't believe the Bible. But if we by faith stand up and pray and obey, we will make progress. The temperature's right and the leaven spreads. The temperature's all wrong. That's why we're losing ground. The temperature's all wrong. Let's get the temperature right. Through repentance, restoration, and watch what God does. Jesus wasn't joking around when he told Peter in that, after that great confession. He said, I say to you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We storm, they fall down. I love when David's on fire. When David gets really excited, he'll say, I was, I was excited, I was full of spirit. I'd, I'd storm the gates of hell with a water pistol. So he says, we need that kind of confidence. I will storm the gates of hell with a water pistol. Why? Because my confidence ain't in what's in my hand. It's in whose hand I'm in. And he's got this. When Christ returns, he will not be returning to a weed field that has some wheat mixed in it. He's going to come to a wheat field that has some weeds mixed in it. We've got it all wrong. He will be returning for us. Guys, we need some confident Christianity. Great, most decorated Marine ever. I love some of his quotes. Chesty Puller, I don't know if you've heard of him. He said, All right, men, the enemy's on our left, they're on our right, they're in front of us and they're behind us. They can't get away this time. (laughs) He said, Retreat! We need to attack in a different direction. But they're always on the offensive. Christians have went straight defensive. When God calls us to be an offensive people, storming the gates of hell and promises us the victory, believe Him for that and let's storm together. Kind and gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You so much for this parable of the mustard seed. We thank You for the hope we have in a resurrected, exalted Savior and the fact that we have the Holy Spirit and the living God and we have all these massive promises. God, help us to believe these massive promises. Give us repentance from our complacency. And Lord, give us great success. Give us wisdom to know what to do, how to combat, how to fight the culture wars. And yes, there are culture wars, but we're on the winning side. Help us remember that. Give us wisdom to know how to fight. And Lord, give us success. We dare not fight by our own strength, by our own arm. We'd be fools. But Lord, we trust you to fight for us and on our behalf. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.